I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. After about two months being out of Hebrews, we're now coming back into it. We're at Hebrews chapter 8, so we're on track to finish by 2027. If you are visiting, you're new here, you came in the last few weeks or the last few months, again, we just want to welcome you. Maybe you're new to this study, and I hope to give just a little bit of context for where we're at since we're picking it back up after a couple of months being gone out of this book. But as we connect here at Heritage, uh, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, make sure that you are connecting here at Heritage into the community where people can encourage you and speak into your life. And if you have any questions about how that can happen, please speak to us. Stop by the Welcome Center. If you don't have a Bible or a copy of God's Word, we'd love to give one to you. Of course, you can also just, by the blessing of technology, uh, pull it up, Google on your phone, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. This is New Testament, written by, we don't know whom exactly in the flesh, but we do know written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, written to a predominantly, what we think, Hebrew audience, because the people here had to have an understanding of the Old Testament, because it is so rife with Old Testament references, and you're going to see that in just a moment. Hebrews, a wonderful, wonderful book on the treaties and the exaltation of who Christ is, his role his function, his work, and what it means for us. Before we talk about him, though, I want to talk about our enemy, Satan. Because Satan is an often misunderstood individual more informed by Hollywood and things in popular culture than rather what the Bible says. Well, who is he? First, he's a created angel. He is a created being. He is not God. Only God is uncreated and eternal and has no causality, beginning, or end. Satan has a beginning. He was created by God, created to give worship to God. But he refused his place, his honor, because he welled up in pride and said, I want to be like God. And so he was cast from heaven and became the enemy of the saints. He is a chief angel or was a chief angel originally created on the level of Michael the archangel according to Jude 9. Matthew 25 and Revelation 12 tells us that he now leads a band of evil angels that roam this world. Although he's an angel of darkness, he disguises himself as an angel of light. And that is indeed how sin and our enemy works. He, he looks Good. He looks like an angel of light, but in fact, he is an angel of darkness. In English, we call him Satan. In Hebrew, Satan basically means adversary or the one who opposes. Chronicles, second book of Chronicles and first book of Kings, calls Satan a lying spirit. Peter and Job say that he's one who prowls around. Throughout the Bible, he is called the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon. Beelzebub, the chief of angels, or of evil angels. Evil one, God of this world, king, prince of the power of the air, ruler of this world, and a fallen star. In Zechariah 3, he is called an accuser. In Revelation 12, he is called an accuser. 38 times in the New Testament, he is called the devil. And the word diabolos, from which we get the English word diabolical, 
And roughly translated, it means slanderer. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. He is a perpetual liar, John 8 says. He's a father of lies. He's a murderer. He's a ruler of this fallen world. Not that he has dominion that God in Christ specifically does not have dominion, but rather the fallen world is under his guidance and under his domain. He is a fearsome adversary. One who day in and day out accuses you and slanders you and talks about your worthlessness or that your worth is only found in your education or your looks or your family or your job. He slanders you to your heart and to others. He constantly speaks lies into your mind and into your worldview so that you come to believe that things that should not give satisfaction, you think they will give satisfaction. And things that will cause death, you think, oh, there's no harm in it. And his army of fallen angels that we call demons roam this world to slander, accuse, and oppose the people of God. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Those insecurities and accusations, that unworthiness, a sense of self-deprecation that just gets darker and darker and deeper and deeper. Satan accuses us. The world under his power is constantly accusing us. If you believe in the Bible and you have a sense of morality, you're called a bigot. Insensitive. But what's more, our own heart even accuses us. Our own heart condemns us. Seems like everywhere we go, it's just a constant barrage of accusation. And what's more, on top of all of this, we know that we are deserving of much of the accusation. I mean, the Bible itself says in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we deserve eternal hell justly, and our enemy never wants to let us forget that. Now here we come to a, a, a balance that we must maintain very carefully. And that we must recognize that we are deserving of hell and the justice of God. But we also must realize that there is something called the gospel. Good news. That absolutely, completely, and eternally disarms all of the accusations and lies that Satan constantly throws at us. Here's a key question for you this morning as we look at this text. As I talk about our accuser and our heart accusing us, the question we have then is, what hope do we have? And the bigger question, here's the key question, who can speak on our behalf? Who answers the accusations? And who answers the condemnation? Brothers and sisters, the answer to that question is why the book of Hebrews is written. 
is to show you the one, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, to show you the one who speaks on your behalf, who thunders with such omnipresent omnipotence, eternality, self-existence, and infinity, that as he speaks against the accusation, he silences the enemy and he destroys death, not just in the moment, but for all of eternity. Hebrews is a lovely book that its main point is to say, let's see who this Jesus is who speaks on your behalf, who is your high priest, the one who stands in intercession on your behalf for you. So, Let us read Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. And we continue here in a series of defenses that the writer is making to show the qualifications and the worthiness of Christ to be our advocate. Now the point of what we are saying is this, beginning in verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now let's stop there. So Hebrews chapter 5 through Hebrews chapter 7, there has been an elongated discussion and presentation of Jesus as priest and his qualifications of priest and why he is superior, why he is more excellent. But the main point that we should draw our attention to is this, and that is what the writer says is the main point. You hear it? Verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. This is the point you need to get. This is what you need to hear. This is what you need to not daydream. Don't miss this. Underline it and circle it. Here is the main point. We have such a high priest. We have a high priest like no other. Hebrews chapter 1 begins the discussion of who this high priest is. That he is the creator God. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Scientists are always constantly trying to think what makes this universe tick? What holds molecules together? Where does matter come from and antimatter? Where is the energy that binds the universe together? Hebrews chapter 1 tells you it is the living Jesus Christ who holds it all together. He holds it together. This high priest, this Jesus, is God, very God. The angels worship him, Hebrews 1, verse 6. He is eternal. His days have no beginning. His days have no end. Your throne, O God, is forever 
and ever. He is eternally glad. And that within himself, in his self-sufficiency, with his Father and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, exist in eternal joy. And he never changes. Verse 12. You are the same and your years will have no end. He's immutable. You and I change from moment to moment. For every minute that passes in my sermon, you are getting more and more sleepy. And more and more hangry. Right? You're changing. Your physical body is burning energy right now. It is wasting away. You are getting older and frailer. You're getting moodier as the day goes on. God never gets moody. He does not burn up energy in that he needs to be replenished. He is because he is. As God told, Ab told Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. I exist by my own power and eternality, by my own strength and will, and I never change. So the God you prayed to yesterday is the same God you prayed to today and the same God you pray to tomorrow. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. This is who Jesus is. So don't neglect him. Hebrews chapter 2, that he is the one who will restore the honor and the glory of humanity. Him being made in the image of man, being truly a man in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful, Romans 8 says. That he is a man so that he could come into humanity and be a sacrifice for human beings. He's not just some transcendent God that we saw in chapter 1, but he's a transcendent God who's entered our domain so that he can sympathize. He understands your weaknesses, your insecurities, your battles, the, the, the accusations that you feel under. He knows them. And he's going to address them specifically and then take your sin, Hebrews chapter 2, and make propitiation, satisfy the wrath that your sin deserved. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua, chapter 4. And he is greater than Aaron and Aaron's priesthood, chapter 5. He has the right heart and demeanor in that he knows how to deal gently, deal gently, with us in our sins. One of the qualifications of a priest is to be able to have a heart and mind that deals gently. He, he knows the sinner and deals with them where they're at. And then he's after the order of Melchizedek. He's not a part of the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron's priesthood, but he's of a new priesthood, a Melchizedekian priesthood. One that chapter 7 says that he is a king of righteousness. He's a priest. He's God. He is king. He's eternal. He is man. He functions in the priesthood. He's able to execute the priesthood in a way, execute the offices of his priesthood in a way that is superior to what we see in the Old Testament. The covenant and the promise and the peace that he brings is superior. And the place in which he functions in his office as superior. Now we start to enter that into Hebrews chapter 8. That we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this high priest does not operate on the earth, but rather 
He is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So his, the context of his ministry is not some frail human temple that man built, but rather he operates within the very presence of his father seated at the right hand. To be seated at the right hand of a sovereign is to be seated in co-equal authority with them. It also says that, specifically, he is seated versus standing. You see, in the Old Testament, when the priests went into the tabernacle, into the temple, they never sat down. There were no seats in the temple. There, the only seat that is described is called the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And that mercy seat was the mobile or the portable throne of God on earth. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. The mercy seat was symbolic of his throne. It would have been utterly blasphemous for a priest to sit on that seat. So the priests in the Old Testament, they, they never sat. Why? Because they're always having to do their duties. They never end. They have to get up the next day and offer more sacrifices. They have to continue tending to the temple and making intercession on behalf of the people. Their responsibilities never cease. But Jesus Christ on the cross offers himself as a sacrifice, ascends into heaven. And in the throne room of God, in the holy of holies of heaven, he once and for all gives his blood and then sits down because there's nothing else to do. When he said it's finished, it's finished. It's done. Jesus does not have to continually stand in heaven because the salvific work that he accomplished is completed. Now people bring up and they say, wait, 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 hold on. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is getting stoned. He looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. A distinction. When it comes to salvation, Jesus sits down. When it comes to working on your behalf, he is not passive. He is standing up and actively mediating your cause. You are not alone. Jesus said, I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. We have such a high priest. He doesn't operate here. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the triune eternal God in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, so we have such a high priest. Such a high priest. He is distinguished from other priests in his, give you four things briefly, moral adequacy. And we see this reference back to in Hebrews chapter 7, that he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That he is, number two, has a finished work as opposed to the other priests and that he is seated. Number three, he reigns. Priests do not reign. They are priests. They are not kings. The offices were not confused. The only, only exception really in the Old Testament is Melchizedek. And that's why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, a priest king. Jesus is a priest, but also a sovereign. And then number four, he serves in a superior sanctuary, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
Okay, so we have such a high priest. We've seen his qualifications. Hebrews continues to roll out these qualifications to us. And now he's beginning to make the argument, another way that makes him superior is the place where he operates. So the question is, how is the place he serves a superior sanctuary? It says he's a high priest operating in the true tent that the Lord has made, not man. So Christ has a priestly ministry, but not in an earthly temple. And, and, and I think we need to be very careful here because sometimes we think that, okay, that the, 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 there's a temple in heaven, but Revelation 21 and 22 very clearly teaches us that there is no temple in heaven. But we have here the description that there's a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. How do we understand that? To explain that, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus chapter 25, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God appears to him in fire and cloud and thunder, and he says, I want you to build a tabernacle, and here's how you build it, and he builds it after the pattern that he showed him, specifically Hebrews 25 verse 40, see that you make the tabernacle, or these articles of the tabernacle, after the pattern which is being shown you on the mountain. Again, in Numbers chapter 8, verse 4, that in making the lampstand, the, the, the hammered lampstand that, that we call the menorah, that many, many armed lampstand, from its base to its flowers, it was hammered work of gold according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. So what we have is that we do have heavenly realities and earthly shadows. Heavenly realities and earthly shadows. I think sometimes we think because our senses are alive and because we can think and we, because we can see and touch and smell and feel that this is the most real existence. But in many ways, our existence here on earth is simply a shadow of the true reality that is heaven. You have five senses. Think of the senses that are awakened in heaven when you can behold spiritually and physically the very manifest glory of God. God says, and we see in the Old Testament, even in Isaiah 6, there, we see an altar there. We, we, see, we see a throne room. There are physical and spiritual constructs in heaven. And God gives a picture of that to Moses and says, this is my throne. This is kind of what it looks like. Now build the tabernacle to be an earthly representation of that true reality. Now here is the, the caution. Don't assume that everything that you see in the tabernacle is exactly the way it is in heaven. Because the tabernacle, though it pictures the, the heavenly throne room of God, and though they are shadows of things that actually do exist in heaven. I mean, even in Revelation 1, when John sees the, the seven lamps, it reminds the seven, the seven fires and lampstands. It, it, it conjures up that image of the menorah of the Old Testament. So we see these shadows and realities crisscrossing across Scripture. But the tabernacle is constructed for sinful man to enter in part to God's presence. There is no such construct in heaven. That's why there's no temple in heaven. 
There's no separation of God's presence. If you are in heaven, you are in the holy, holies of God's presence. There is no outer court, inner court, holy of holies, rituals to go through to be able to access him. If you are in heaven, you have full access into the very holy, holies of heaven. Now, the writer here is saying, there are copies and shadows here on earth, the tabernacle and the temple, that depicted and was actual the dwelling place of God on earth for a period of time. And the priests operated in that temple and the rituals were established for limited access. You get that? Rituals, the tabernacle, the cleansing, the purification were, were established for limited access. Access. Even the high priest himself could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year and only for a designated period of time. Jesus, the high priest, who is the eternal one, the glorious one, the worthy one, he operates in the true sanctuary. Not just in the symbolic or the temporary dwelling place of God, but he operates in the actual dwelling place of God. And unlike the priests of the earth, Jesus Christ has unlimited access into the holy of holies of heaven. That he has, according to chapter 7, gone in behind the curtain on our behalf. That he has gone into the holy of holies, offered his blood in, I do believe, an actual altar of heaven that will stand as, as, a, as a memorial but also as an actual reminder and reality that the sacrifice is paid for. We see that altar in Isaiah 6. We see it alluded to in Hebrews. And there he offers his blood and it's a sweet smelling fragrance to God the Father who says for all of eternity the debt is paid. And because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus has unlimited access to God, we have unlimited access to God. Turn with me to, Re to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, please. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Now you may say, this is a lot of theology and I'm starting to get lost in it. Please, please do not skip over the theolo theological richness of the New Testament and Scripture and rush to the practicalities. Here's what can happen if you do. So Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11 is basically nothing but rich salvation, theology, and the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Now Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 16, you know what we find? Very, very practical things about living sacrifice, be holy, uh, not, don't be angry, and to how to interact with other people. And one of the dangers in the Christian church is that we skip over Romans chapter 1 through 11, and then we go from right to chapter 12 and to chapter 16, and we say, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. And this is what a Christian looks like. And there we have empty religion born. You cannot do those practicalities even in their simplest form unless you understand and have seen Jesus Christ in Romans 1 through Romans 11 that you know who you are in Jesus Christ. That Romans 8, there is no condemnation and that he has empowered me in his Holy Spirit and now I can live Romans 12 through 16 not because of who I am but because of who Jesus is. 
And if you skip out on your identity in Christ and who you are and go right to the practicals, you will not have the power to do it and you won't even know why you're doing it in the first place. Same with Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 11 is deep theology with the goal to share with you that Jesus Christ is your solid rock, your advocate. You don't have to fear. He acts on your behalf. You can be confident in who he is based on that. Romans 11, sorry, Hebrews 11 through Hebrews 13. Now live by faith in the knowledge of who Christ is. It matters so don't, don't get lost, please. Because of this high priest who operates in the heavenlies on our behalf, and if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, and he, he gives us his access, all right? Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have access. We have Christ's access. The access that Jesus himself has with his Father to those who trust and believe in him. He gives us his access. In Christ we have his access and we stand. We stand in that grace. Turn with me to, if you would, Last turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. So in Christ, we stand and have access into the Father because of his priestly work. Remember Jesus is seated. Do you remember that? Jesus is seated. We're standing. But don't lose this thought that Jesus is seated. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, our forerunner, our advocate, who has gone into the holy place and offered his blood, now gives us his access. We have access to come into the presence of God and to commune with the Holy Trinity, but it does not stop there. In Christ, he then says, now come sit with me on my throne with me. Not that you become God but that you are given a place of exaltation and glory, that you are able to reign with Christ. I mean, Revelation chapter 3 speaks of the same thing, that they're the one that perseveres. I'll invite him to sit with me on my throne. 
Your destiny when Satan, if you've trusted in Christ and Satan says, you are worthless, you have no power, you have no authority, you say no, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, he who ran, who has given me access, he's gone before and I am seated with him, therefore he is with me and if God be for me, who can be against me? Get out of here, Satan, you got no power. Right? I mean, th- th- that's the bedrock of our confidence, our identity, that you are forgiven, that you have an advocate, that you have access, that you are seated on the throne with God, the Son. Therefore, if you turn from such a high priest, heed the warning of Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is an accuser out there. And who speaks on your behalf? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then his accusations, his power, and the death of sin has no power over you. His voice silences Satan into submission. It's not Jesus and Satan doing this arm wrestling. There is God, and then there is Satan, this little itty-bitty created being trying to create mischief. If you are in Christ, if God before you, who can be against you? But brother and sister, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, friend, you're just playing the game. You call yourself a brother and sister but are not. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ. You do not have an advocate. You do not have one, a high priest who stands on your behalf. You face the accusations and the just wrath of God alone. And your filthy rags of righteousness that you think are good will count for nothing compared against the holiness, the thrice holy, holy, holy God. But here's the good news, the gospel. You confess, you believe, trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You instantly have an advocate that will never leave your side, a high priest who will never cease pleading your case. That's wonderful news, amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you for your faithfulness in bearing with our sinfulness. If there be some here who have not trusted in you, Jesus. I pray that you would get a hold of their heart and move upon their heart and help them see that they stand alone and in their own righteousness and holiness, they will not succeed, but they will face the just wrath of God and the accusations will ring for all of eternity in a very real place of hell. But you, God, being rich in mercy, sent your Son to die on the cross that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I pray that these people who are either playing the game or have never trusted that today would be the day of salvation. And if that's you, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors after the service right down here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. Show with you from God's word how you might be saved. Brother and sister, when you who have trusted in Christ, when the accusations come, 
All you have to do is respond and say, I have such a high priest who pleads my cause. I have access and I am seated with him. There is nothing the enemy can do to me. Oh God, we rejoice in that truth. We pray in your name and give thanks for your goodness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.